Friendship isn't the big things, it's a million little things. Hello friends, and welcome to this, A Million Little TV Shows podcast. I'm Mike, and I'll be delving into TV shows that I feel don't seem to get enough love. Over the course of the pod, we'll break down episodes and talk about my thoughts and feelings on the shows. Welcome back guys. Now today we're going to be covering something a little different. We're going to be covering we're going to be covering Modern Love season 1, episodes 1 to 4. When I first saw this series, I didn't know what to expect. I love an anthology series, things like Black Mirror or American Horror Story or American Crime Story. They make me happy cuz you don't know what to expect. And then they give you something each season or each episode that's different and it's entertaining and they use incredible actors in the shows. And when I first saw this series, it was during the pandemic and I fell in love with it immediately. The concept of it, you know, I like the casting. I think I saw some of the episodes cast list and thought, this is going to be incredible. And it's one of those shows that, again, probably didn't do well at the time, but actually, because it's on a streaming platform, will get more downloads as time goes on. Because people will just be flicking through trying to find stuff, and they'll find something like this. So the concept of the show is, each episode is a different love story, mostly set in and around New York, especially for the first season. And it just has beautiful messages inside and gives a perspective on love that I don't think a lot of people think about these days. And it made me think, because it's something I want, but I don't know how to go out there and get it. And people keep saying, it'll come to you, and it has, but I don't know. It never stayed. So let me crack on with this first episode, and we'll discuss more as I go along. Episode 1, When the Doorman is your main man. This episode stars Christine Malotti as Maggie, Lorento Possa as Guzmine, Brandon Victor Dixon as Daniel, Daniel Reese as Mark, and Charles Warburton as Ted. Okay, so the first point I want to make about this show is the opening sequence. The title song is perfect for this kind of thing that they're trying to get across. It speaks to me being a child of like the 80s, early 90s, because it's very much in the tone of like Cheers or some British romance comedies that used to be on TV, things like Just Good Friends. And it's just very sombre, but very sweet. I like it. I think it's a really good way to introduce an episode and something I haven't heard in such a long time. So we start with Maggie, and she's on a date with a guy called Mark. When she gets in the vicinity of her hotel, she is essentially looking to try and get rid of Mark, it feels, but also wants to kiss him. So when Mark asks why she doesn't want to go to the door of her hotel, they look over and see the doorman waiting at the door, and she says, that's Guzmine. And Mark asks if she is afraid of his opinion on her date and she tells him no 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 mark starts acting a little bit inappropriate for a first date 
but he's also sort of fooling around with Maggie a little bit and teasing her a little bit. And Maggie's concerned about what Guzman is thinking at this particular point. She keeps glancing over at him, trying to win his approval. Guzman, however, has already ordered a taxi for this man, and as it pulls up, Maggie tells him, your time's up. Mar gets in the taxi and leaves, and Maggie speaks to Guzmin, and he tells her that he's not the one. And Maggie says, well, you never even met him, but he tells her that he can see a lot being a former sniper. So he says that Mark won't text, and he won't call, and that she won't hear from him again. Maggie sends a cheeky text to Mark about wishing he'd come upstairs, and she never gets a reply. And she knows that Guzmin was spot on again. So Maggie has another date, this time with a guy named Ted. Now, what makes it interesting, and I don't know if this was scripted to be like this, after they got Christine Milotti on, but the fact that she was dating someone called Ted in this show, and one of the roles that I know her best for is being the mother in How I Met Your Mother with the character Ted Mosby is hopefully a little nod to that show, which I always love. But anyway, she's dating this British guy called Ted and he is very handsome, but a little... He's a little dumb. He's not He's not the sharpest tool. But he's he's a pretty boy. And she is eager for him to come back to her place. And when she gets him back there, Guzmin is obviously... Guzmin sees them go in, and in his eye, he puts a target on him. We see that Maggie has been very awkward with this guy as well. The next morning... Maggie wakes up and Teddy's gone. So she thinks that it was just a one-night thing and that Guzman was probably right again. And then she hears him outside and he's brought breakfast. As he's coming up to her apartment, Guzman rings up and tells her that he's an idiot. He's empty-headed and you're a very smart girl, Maggie. You deserve better than this. And at this point, you're feeling a little bit awkward for Maggie. You're feeling that it's a little bit too much that this man has this much involvement in her life. But it does seem that her family used to own the apartment when it was, I don't know, rent controlled back in the 80s. So she has kept this apartment on in New York and is paying next to nothing for it. Whereas, obviously, in New York or any major city, apartments are fucking expensive so she's getting a really good deal on this place so she doesn't want to move but it just feels that things are a little bit awkward for her with having Guzma around and what's his end game here after dating for a while Maggie and Ted break up but after realising but she also realises that she's lost track of time and also her cycle So she goes and gets a pregnancy test and finds out that she's pregnant. She breaks down and doesn't know what to do. She wants to call her mum, she wants to call her dad or her sister. But ultimately she goes to Guzmin, who advises her 
do what she thinks is best, that no one will judge her for it, but that if she doesn't ever feel strong enough to raise a child, it takes a village to raise a child, and New York has a great village. She takes his advice, and as she goes upstairs to bed, she tells him that you tried to protect me from all these bad men for so long, and yet now you are actively making me be alone, to which he replies, you're no longer alone. Maggie meets with Ted and tells him that he can have as little or as much as he wants to do with this child, but she has now decided to have it. You can see from his reaction that he's probably not going to be around that much longer. And then we get a montage of Maggie nesting while Guzman is helping out as much as he possibly can. He's a bit like a father himself to her as he's buzzing around and trying to make sure that she doesn't lift anything too heavy or strain herself. Maggie's waters break, she goes into labour and she's alone. But while in the final pushes of labour, she sees Guzmin's face and it gives her the strength to get through and deliver her baby. Once back at her apartment, Guzmin is essentially a grandfather figure towards Maggie's little girl, Sarah. And we see over another montage that he is really looking out for both of them, including one day when he has to look after her after Maggie gets called into work for a quick meeting. And when she asks what they've done that day, she finds out that they've been to a museum, which Guzmin had never been to before. And so it was a first-time experience for them both. So during a night when Maggie can't sleep, she goes down to see Guzmin. She tells him she's had a job offer, but it's out in LA. And she seems worried for Sarah being raised out in LA, but you can see a little bit of the worry is for herself, but also that she'll miss the city. And she admits that Sarah will miss the city. She'll miss the building. But she'll also miss Guzmin. At this, Guzmin gets up and goes and stands at the door. And Maggie gets in the lift and begins to cry. Five years on, we see a taxi driving through New York. And Maggie, an eight-year-old Sarah, and Maggie's new man, Daniel, are in the car. They're heading to the hotel, and Guzman greets them. And as soon as he meets Daniel, and Daniel says, I believe I've got to pass a test. Guzmin says, you've already passed it. I saw it in her eyes as she opened the door. And he tells her, I was never looking at the guy, Maggie. I was always looking at you. He knew the moment that she found that person, he'd see it. And he did, in Daniel. They then go off and have a lovely day at the museum again, at Sarah's request. Now, the reason that I love this story so much is because throughout, you get a sense of, at first you think Guzmín's being a little bit off because he has a thing for Maggie. 
But then as time goes on, you realise that it's not a thing that he has for Maggie, but maybe he's being a bit parental and he's being a bit of a father figure to her. And that comes when he's then being a sort of grandfather figure. And then when you realise that he's actually being a friend to her and he care, he just wants to care for her, it's a beautiful moment knowing that he was only ever looking at her eyes and seeing if she knew that this person was the one for them. And I've done that myself. I've been in that situation where I had a good friend, I have a good friend, and me and her tried to be together for a little while, but nothing nothing came of it. And we, I just argued a lot. And I cared for her. I cared for her a lot. And I still care for her a lot. But the next time I saw her, we were having a chat and she confessed that she was seeing someone. And as soon as she said it, I saw the look on her face and I saw it in her eyes. She'd been treated like shit for such a long time. And part of me hopes that she realised when I came into her life that she deserved better. And now she's found it. And I love that for her. I love just seeing her and chatting with her about this guy. And she's fucking made up. And I love that for her. So sometimes we do all need sort of a who's mean in our life to look after us, take care of us, and make sure we're on the right path. Episode 2, when Cupid is a prying journalist, starring Catherine Keener as Julie, Deb Patel as Joshua, Caitlin McGee as Emma, Eric Jensen as Darren, and Andy Garcia as Michael. Julie is conducting an interview with Joshua. Joshua's a tech mogul, and he's developed a very successful dating app. But as he's about to leave his interview with Julie, she asks him, have you ever been in love? He sits back down and she turns off the tape and she says, I can see the answer to my question written all over your face. Tell me about it. And I think this is the first scene that I ever saw. I think it was in the trailer. And that's where I went, yeah, I need to watch this. I love Dev Patel anyway. I've loved him from like Life of Pi and the newsroom. So I knew I wanted to watch it just for his performance, even if it was just one episode. And then I get it. Like, if someone asked me that question, the answer would be written all over my face too. Because you go back to that memory of when you were in love. And it's a special place. So instantly she could see it on his face. And this is where he begins to tell his story. He goes for a job interview and they are sat in a room waiting to go in. But as they're waiting... He spies a girl who would be eventually his competition and he goes over and speaks to her. They have a little bit of back and forth about who's going to get this job and maybe the other should leave and they're flirting and it's all cute and sweet. And then she goes in for the interview before him and he decides to leave. He waits downstairs for her and she comes out and he says, how did it go? And she says, you should get back up there. They're looking for you. And he says... But if I do, I'm going to miss out on this opportunity to go on a date. So they go out and they go to the zoo and she can tell that he is obsessed with this dating app concept of finding out what and why and where and how and 
everything to do with dating, why it happens, why, how do you find your first perfect person god damn it i'm still trying to find that but it's a really sweet moment as he's going around the zoo with emma and she starts doing this really goofy voice because he wants to interview leopards about how they meet each other and and she's like dude you're in a zoo like that's how they met each other because they're here and she's like but what about in the animal kingdom what about how they how they get to know each other and things like that and she's just very basic of they just get together and bang it out like it's mad but she asks him to interview her as this leopard and so he interviews the leopard and she answers for him with this kind of oh i'm just a big leopard and i just want to do this and i just find someone and i just sleep with them because i like their spots and it's proper funny and it really cute and it just if you had that on a first date and you had the chemistry that these two seem to have, you'd feel it. You'd fall in love straight away. Just watching her, I'm like, I could fall in love with her. She's funny, she's sweet, she's cute. The first six months for them are great. Everything is going in the right direction. It is looking like they're gonna get married. He's bought a ring, he's met her parents and got on great with the dad which is always a great feeling when you have that warmth from a family that they love you that it just feels so much better i've had the opposite of that and trust me being on the outside of that is fucking cold but having that relationship and having that warmth and care going into the whole thing you just get a little complacent and sometimes things happen out of your control and in this case emma's gone back home and She's gone to a bar and she's met an old boyfriend and she ends up sleeping with him. Joshua leaves instantly. He can't even face her anymore. And he gets out and they don't speak again. And the next two years of Joshua's life are a huge success. He's His dating app takes off. He's going to launch parties. He's dating again. But when you feel like you've found that person, it just doesn't feel right anymore. It sucks not being with them. So one day he's just walking down the street with his new girlfriend and he sees Emma again with her boyfriend and instantly all the feelings come back. They rush into your mind and you realise you're not over them. So he ends up calling her and finds out that she's been engaged for two years. It's cutting back and forth between what happened and the interview. And the interviewer tells him that, well, that's a long time to be engaged, surely. And she also asks... So what happened with you and the other girl? And he says, well, I broke up with my girlfriend because I knew it wasn't right. She's a great person, but she just isn't the one for me. And that's heart-wrenching. That is heart-wrenching, especially for someone like me who thinks they've found the right person and then hasn't. It's difficult. And to see someone going through it on screen, I think that's why I resonated so well with this. So then Julie tells her story. She starts giving Joshua advice about maybe you should call her, maybe you should contact her. See, you've got to try and see what's going on. If you don't ever contact her, you'll never ever know whether it's going to work between you two. And then she says, trust me, I know. So she tells the story of how she met this guy, Michael. They had this incredible romance. But after a while, she was living in Paris and he was living in London. 
And not long after she'd been to see him in London, he was meant to be coming over to Paris to see her, but he never showed. And then years later, she still thought about him. Even though she was married, even though she had kids, he was still the one that she thought of, and she still cared for him. She never got that answer as to why he did what he did. So one day she's doing a book signing, and it's 17 years later, and in walks Michael. He'd seen online that she was going to be there, and he came to find her. He tells her that he didn't stand her up, but he lost her address. He lost the book that she'd signed her address in, and therefore he didn't make it to see her. He tells her he's put his number on this scrap of paper, and he leaves it in one of her books that she's been signing and says, if you're still in town, call me, and we can grab a coffee or something. Afterwards, she takes the scrap of paper out and unfurls it and realises it's the ticket to Paris on the day that he was meant to be there and that he hadn't stood her up at all. Since she's staying in town, she rings Michael and they meet and they have dinner and they talk. After all these years, the love's still there and they talk all night. They stay awake and watch the sunrise. Nothing more. Just two people reconnecting again. Julie leaves to go back to New York, and Michael goes home. He sees his wife sending his children off to school, and goes in to see her. At the same time, Julie gets home, and sits down at a table with her husband. Michael tells his wife, I want to work on this. While Julie tells her husband, I think we're done here. That again is heartbreak, for me at least, because... I've had that situation where you fall for someone that you really shouldn't and you know you love them more than you ever thought possible and you leave a partner for them and they don't leave a partner for you and now you're alone again. Julie publishes her article and she tells the story of this tech millionaire that created a matchmaking app that works and he's been successful but he still has issues in his own love life because of the one that got away. Emma reads the article and is shocked to find that that Joshua still loves her. She leaves her fiancé and comes to find him. This is the one. This is the one episode that I knew was going to be the hardest to get through for me. A lot of the feelings I have are still raw, and it is going to be a lot of me talking about everything that I've been through, through these TV shows the reason that they do resonate with me, the reason that they are such big parts of my life is because of how they make me feel. I'm happy for the experiences that I've had. I'm happy for the people that I've loved, the people that I still love. But when I watch these shows, they mean so much to me because they let me express the way that I feel. They let me process things. They help me process things. And I want to share that. The problem being that I don't have anyone to share it with, so it's difficult when you don't have someone to co-present with and someone to give their opinion back. And that's why I'm doing this. I want to engage with an audience. I want people to understand why these shows mean so much to me. And hopefully, through this, you will. And then give me suggestions. Give me things to look out for. And I will. I'll look into them. And I'll, if they're for me, they're for me. And I'll comment on them and I'll I'll give them the same kind of warmth that I'm giving this. Episode 3. Take me as I am, whoever I am.
This episode stars Anne Hathaway as Lexi, Gary Carr as Jeff, Quincy Tyler Bernstein as Sylvia, and Judd Hirsch as several different characters throughout. We meet Lexi, and she is filling out a dating profile, which is hard enough to do as it is. Unfortunately, I've done it on several occasions, and... God damn it, I hate those fucking things. They're so difficult. They're just... Summarize your personality in a box. And I think if you can do that, do you have one? They're usually the same fucking thing anyway. Anyway, off track. So Lexi, she's filling out this online dating form. And she starts to type in the box, who am I? Whilst she's doing that, she's rambling. A lot like I just did. Just talking about, there's something about me you need to know, but... Um, it's not a big thing, but it is kind of a, it's kind of a big deal, but it's not, it's not a huge thing. It's, and she's just rambling. She's just typing away and she spies a peach across from her in her apartment. So she goes on to tell this story about how she met Jeff and the whole scene is something straight out of a musical, really like upbeat jazz track with big pops within it. And there's a whole, like, dance routine throughout a supermarket while she's just wandering around in this gold top, looking fabulous, because it's fucking Anne Hathaway, so of course she does, but she's just looking incredible. And she's happy, and she's smiley, and she's she sees this guy, Jeff, and he's where she wants to be, and she instantly takes her fancy to him straight away. And then she goes over to him, and she starts talking, and... They're flirting, and she's touching her hair, and she's making him laugh, and she's laughing. and It's the usual thing. You'll have seen it on many, many occasions, either in real life or on TV, where they just have this spark. They're walking around together. They arrange to meet later on in the week, and also they go for a coffee, get to know each other a little bit more, and of course, you know, same again, the chemistry's there, everything seems right, everything seems good. Lexi then goes to work. She seems to be a lawyer or a solicitor of some sort. And a boss comes in and she's ecstatic to see her and this girl's new at this office but everyone loves her and all this great stuff. She seems to be really fit in it. But then the boss just mentions to her about HR and how they've mentioned that she's had four days off in 20 for the last month and maybe you know that's not an ideal situation so we see that there's something a little off in Lexi's behavior Lexi gets home after this day of joy and happiness and she's got a day and she's had a good day at work she's just been smiling constantly and then it happens the world slows down the depression starts. It seems that she has a severe case of depression that knocks her off her feet for days at a time. She gets into bed and she curls up and she just lays there for days until Thursday comes round and Jeff is now at her door. She goes out in like sweatpants and a top and he asks where she wants to go and she just says, I want to get some muesli. 
and it's like nine at night, eight, nine at night. And she says, don't worry, I know a place. And she takes him and the waitress seems familiar with her and she seems familiar with this order as well. So Lexi obviously comes here a lot when she's in this mode. They sit mostly in silence throughout the meal and then she suggests going for ice cream. Throughout the whole evening, she is on the verge of tears. And every time that Jeff asks her a question, she gives the bare minimum. Jeff takes her home, and when she's walking up to her door, she asks him if he wants to come in for coffee or sex. And, I mean, he seems like a good guy, and he says no. I've heard horror stories of people that probably would do that. But he says no, and he just says, look, if you ever feel better, contact me. She's already told him that she feels ill, she's had the flu, is what she tells him. It turns out she's had this since she was a teenager. One day she got into bed, her parents just thought it was her being ill. She then went on for 21 days in bed and barely moved. It was here that she realised that she had to be an outstanding student at the time that she could be there, so that when she wasn't there, it wouldn't matter. She aced all her classes, she became valedictorian, she went on to graduate with high honours, went to university, did the same, was the best in her class, went out into the world, and every job that she got, she was amazing when she was on, but when she was off, the days added up and she just couldn't justify them and then neither could the and neither could the job. So it was here that she just kept losing these jobs because she wasn't turning up on time or she wasn't turning up at all. While all this was going on, she was going through a range of different treatments, from medical to spiritual. She was having electroshock therapy. She was having cognitive behavioural. She was trying to do yoga. But then she'd just go back into this cocoon state and eventually the sun would rise again. Lexi wakes up in a much better mood and the first thought in her head is I've got to contact that perfect, beautiful man who's so sweet and so caring and just talk to him. Try and get him back on side. So she rings him, she tells him that she didn't feel great, but now she's feeling on top of the world again. Can he come over? She's got this chaotic energy about her. And he says, look, can we do it tomorrow? And she says, oh, no, no, it's got to be today. She knows that she has this window of opportunity while she's still in this mood to grasp it, to show him what she is like, show him this side of her bipolar personality. He agrees to it and she says, look, come to mine, I'll cook, we'll have fun. And she's ecstatic, and then she looks, and she sees the apartment, and she goes, I can't show him this. So she has a day just cleaning, making everything look good again. She is on top of the world. She gets ready. She looks stunning. And then it happens again. The world begins to go quiet. The darkness sets in. And the buzzer goes. He's here. She tries to shake it off. She tries to go answer the door. She breaks down. She ends up lying on the bathroom floor, crying. 
she gets up, she starts to turn the lights off in the apartment, she starts to blow out candles, and in her head she's begging for Jeff to come back, but go away, don't come back, but come back, please come back, don't go away, please come back, go away, just go away. And it's it's so sad, because if she'd have just talked to someone, if she'd have talked to Jeff on that first date, maybe he would have understood. It's not something that's easy to get over. And I speak from experience. Again, you know, I've said many times on this podcast that I want to talk about stories that affected me. And this is another one. And it was one that I forgot about until I saw Anne Hathaway on the poster of this. Again, went, oh God, yeah, there's the bipolar episode. And then I remembered my own experience the woman that I was with, she was a lot older than me and she had bipolar and it was great when she was in that zone, when she was on it. God damn it, she was a whirling dervish of fun and sex appeal and she was just incredible. And then she'd turn on a dime and she'd go from fun and flirty to deadly serious and in some cases deadly there were times that not when we were together thank thankfully not when we were together as in physically together but just over text we'd be sat texting and we'd be flirting and we'd be saying you know the usual sexting just fun and then she'd stop and she'd tell me that she wanted to hurt me and if I ever hurt her she'd kill me and there were times that she'd tell me that she would make sure she had a knife handy with her when she was at mine just in case so it wasn't a case of depression in the way that Anne Hathaway has it in this show or Lexi has it in this show where she just curls up and just the world is outside and that's it It was a case of she got violent and she told me another story, which I'm not going to say on this podcast, but it involved suicidal tendencies and it was, it was fucked up what she told me. And yeah, it was, it was scary. It was really scary to see someone in that way and not want the treatment, not want to talk about it, not want to talk to people, anyone really about it. So back to Lexi. She goes back to her job. They've obviously made their decision by now. This person's been with the firm a couple of months and she's just taking too much time off again. The work's getting done, but it's it's not good enough the way that she's working. As she's about to leave, as she's about to leave, her friend gets hold of her and just says, Can we go for coffee? And it's here that and it's here that Lexi tells Sylvia all about what's been going on. And she confides in her. She knew the other night that she needed to start telling people that this was going to be a factor in their life. And she realises that she should have talked to people sooner. She should have told people sooner because it would have made things a lot easier for them to understand. So she decides to speak up. She decides to tell people what's been going on with her. Old friends, old work colleagues, old boyfriends. And they all understand. They all get it. 
and she starts to reconnect with the world again. She starts getting the correct treatment and she has a better outlook on life. And then she starts filling in the dating profile. It's just a nice story about talking to people and about connecting with people, making sure that they know who you are. Give them in the insight into who you are. Because sometimes not everyone's got it all figured out. Episode 4, Rallying to Keep the Game Alive. This episode stars Tina Fey as Sarah, John Slattery as Dennis, and Sarita Chowdhury as the therapist. Sarah and Dennis are a couple, and as you can tell by the fact that one of the cast members is a therapist, they are in couples therapy together. We see that they are determined that they are done at the beginning of this therapy session and that the marriage won't hold anymore. We then cut to six months earlier. We see Dennis and Sarah at the cinema watching March of the Penguins and it comes to the pivotal scene where the mother loses its egg and goes off back to the sea. And it feels like a really pivotal moment for Sarah. She gets up and she walks out and she goes and brings her children. When Dennis eventually comes out 20 minutes later and says that, don't worry, you know, it was a happy ending. It was, you know, you missed the best bit or whatever. Sarah asks him, what are we going to do when the kids are gone? Like, do we have any common interests? Are we interested in anything that's the same? What are we going to talk about for the next 40 years? I think that when the kids are gone, they're the only thing that's holding us together. And you hear that a lot these days with families. The people that got together, got together for a reason, but they don't know what that reason is anymore. And they stayed together just for the kids. It's the unfortunate thing about having to pick a quote-unquote life partner. Some people get it, and they get it spot on, first time. I know a couple of people that are like that, and it's brilliant. But then you see other people who you think they're lifers. They're the ones that are going to stay together forever, and they don't, ultimately. Life gets involved. And then there's others who just never find that person, or won't find that person until late on. So they're in therapy, and the therapist asks... What do you guys do for fun together? What is it? Have you got any common interests? They argue about it, but eventually they settle on tennis. But the tennis doesn't seem to go well. Dennis keeps trying to make up his own rules, calling it Dennis Tennis. And Sarah just wants to play the game. And the first time they play, Dennis is hitting the ball too hard at her and directly at her. And each time they play, there's just something that happens within the game. One time they try and get their kids involved and it just ends up in a full family argument. And whenever we cut to shots of them at the therapist, they're literally just sat in silence. Dennis is a TV actor and seems to know quite a lot of people in and around the industry and in and around the city. So when he sees people out on the street, he just immediately goes over to them and starts talking. But this becomes a bone of contention with Sarah because every time that he does this, he leaves her in his dust, beeline straight for the person that he wants to talk to. On another occasion, he gets recognised at a restaurant and a fan comes over and starts talking to him. But while the fan's talking to him and he is giving his opinion back on the show that he's just left, Sarah gets angry and blows up at him. 
he's meant to be there with his family and he could have just explained to the fan that he was there to be with his family, couldn't talk right now, and he didn't. This is where we go back to the start of the... This is where we go back to the start of the episode. They're in the therapist's office and they think it's coming to an end. Afterwards, they come out, Sarah falls, and Dennis offers her a hand up. They then go for dinner and they sit and they talk and Sarah tells him that she's sick of the person that she is around him. She's constantly waiting for him to fuck up so that she can have a go at him. Sarah lets all her frustrations out and tells him exactly what she probably should have been telling him in therapy. She feels like he's embarrassed her at times and that she's not involved in his life. She's never been to any of the parties that he goes to. She's never been to the award ceremony. She's never been to any after parties. And he realises that this is the fuck-up that he's made. Everything else is insubstantial. She's frustrated because he doesn't let her in enough. He apologises and you get a sense that the tension between them is gone. The unspoken thing is now spoken. The waitress comes over and takes their order. But as she does, she compliments the children. And even though they're not there, they realise that They've done some wrong things in their lives, but they've also done some very right things. Cut to two years later, and they're seeing their son off to college. As they pack the car up, Dennis comes over and hugs his wife, and it seems like things are a lot better between the two of them. They've obviously been working on things. And then at the end, they turn up for tennis, and they're both wearing the same coloured outfit. They're both in white, and... They're playing like they've been playing for a long time now. They seem measured, they seem practised at the game, instead of just hitting balls at each other and it being a little chaotic. They're actually doing rallies, they're actually playing properly, playing like they know each other's game, apologising when they do things that may have hurt the other person or were a little bit off. And they're complimenting each other as well. And it just shows what you can do when you actually talk. Some relationships aren't salvageable, but at least if you get everything out in the open, you can get there to whatever there is. So originally when I first saw this episode, I thought it was the poorest of the lot. And if you go online, which I suggest you don't, because a lot of people's opinions on the internet are great, including my own. Do what you want. Go listen to whatever you want, watch whatever you want. But for me, if you are going to watch this, give it a rewatch. Because when I first watched it, I went, I didn't really like that. I thought the series had started to dip a little bit. The first three episodes were excellent, and this fourth one just let it down a little bit. And now I've watched it again, I've gone, that's a really good episode. Again, it's not as good as the others, but it's a really good episode. And it just shows that if you talk in a relationship, you can deal with things. And if you can't deal with them while talking to each other like human beings, maybe it is time. Maybe it is time to call it a day. 
there's been times that I wish that I'd been able to have those conversations with people to sit down and probably have a conversation with someone about how you're feeling. It's hard, but it is necessary. And I wish people had been more open and honest with me as well. Like the last girl I was seeing, I knew it wasn't working. And I told my friend about it, and my friend went, you're not happy, so why are you with them? And I was going to give it maybe another month or so just to see where things went. I knew where things were going. We were going to finish. And then she turned around to me and said, we need to talk. And I was like, yeah, we do. This isn't working, is it? And she went, no, it's not. And since then, we've met up a couple of times and I talked about her on one of the other episodes. I talked to her about her boyfriend. I'll still text her every now and again, see how things are going. And she's happy, and I like that. I like the fact that she's happy. And I'm sure if you asked her, that's all she wants from me. So it is worth talking to someone. It is worth talking to people. If it's in therapy, if it's just a heart-to-heart. If you've got a problem, especially in your relationship, talk it out. You're either going to go one way or the other. You're either going to work on things, you're going to make things better, or you're going to end things. But the one thing you're not going to do is waste your time. Well, that's all for now, amigos. If you manage to make it to the end of my ramblings, thank you. And... If you want to rate, share, subscribe, comment, it's all appreciated. Until next time.